This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, number three of the studies we are now pursuing in the book of Job. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to switch off for a while, will you read together with us Psalm 73. In this, our third approach to this book of Job, I'm still looking at it from a distance, approaching it from another angle, so that when, after the little interval that must take place through my visit to Manchester and the Midlands, we can then come to the book of Job with a, some element of preparation for its peculiar uh, point of view, and then commence an exposition of it a bit more in detail. When I was roughly between 20 and 21, I was given a bill upon which were printed in large letters Skeptics and the Bible. And I went to hear it because I was more interested in the word Skeptics than I was in the Bible. Now, since I've studied the Word of God, I realised that we could print another bill and we could have a series of studies on Skeptics in the Bible. But it's extraordinary how many there are scattered through the book that God has given by inspiration that raise questions, baffled, perplexed, and sometimes call God hard names and they're all left to tell their story. Now you, if you've only got the faintest acquaintance with the book of Job, you know that that is characteristic of a tremendous amount that's written recorded of what Job said. He horrified his three friends. In fact, that they finished, they said, what's the good of talking to him? Nothing seems to make any difference to him. Now, it starts off by telling us that he was a perfect man, he was upright, he feared God, he eschewed evil, and that he had a fair amount of possessions, and he was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was prosperous, he was happy, he was godly, he was blessed. And then, out of the blue, comes calamity after calamity. First of all, he takes it with a wonderful resignation. He bows his head and says, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The next time, it says he did not speak unadvisedly with his lips. It adds the words with his lips and you wonder whether it was going on in his heart. And then the storm breaks and chapter 3 opens with cursing the day that he was born. Now this has been written and preserved by God. He doesn't blot out those passages and oh, I mustn't let anybody read that. It's there. And I have a feeling or when you get to the end of the book of Job, you remember the last chapter, perhaps you'd like to see it for yourself, chapter 40, I think it is, in spite of all that's been said, uh, chapter 41, 42, the three friends have been seeking to preserve the good name of God. They've been telling Job, oh, you're trying to make yourself more righteous than God. You mustn't say things about the Most High like that. And you would have thought that God would have said at the end, now Job, 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 you see, your three friends were telling you that I was righteous and that I was God and so on. But what it does say at the end is, 
Verse 7, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? These men had been standing for God, justifying God. And they said practically, You see, Job, God is righteous. He doesn't afflict the innocent. Therefore, you must be a secret sinner. And the more they said that, the more Job went off the deep end. And you know, friends, I'm coming to see that God would rather a man take the line of Job than just have a lot of pious platitudes smoothing everybody down and not facing realities. These men weren't facing realities. One was trading on what the wisdom of the past Another one was dealing with tradition and they were bringing these all forward and friends, we've got still people like it today. You know, I, I don't know whether I'm strangely made, but when some terrific thing happens or some small thing, nevertheless, very disconcerting, to stand perhaps one bank holiday with a crowd of people under a pier with hundreds of mothers and screaming children, they've all gone down there for one day's outing and it's coming down heaven's hard and everybody's getting worked up until at last you think murder was in the air. And then somebody very piously says, oh, but it's all for a good purpose, like that. Well, I don't think that's the way to put it. That's how these three men were. It's all for a good purpose. Supposing somebody said, friends, that cannot be an exhibition of the mind and will of God for men. It shows you something's gone adrift. It shows you there's something wrong in this world for these things to happen. And that's what perplexed Job. The more they tried to beat that man down and make him confess to some hidden sin, the more he said, though I stood in the presence of the living God, I would hold my integrity. And I believe God said, Quite right, Job. Don't you confess any sin, any sort of sin because somebody's probing you and making you. I don't want a mock piety. And although one day is coming when every knee shall bow, I'm perfectly certain God doesn't want a lot of yes men all around him, merely fawning on him and saying, oh yes, if you say so, that's all right. He says, no, even though God says so, I cannot agree to it because it isn't right. Of course he's got to learn He's going to get it rectified presently. But honesty of heart, friends, is far more important than mere glib, pious utterances. So what I want to do this evening is to say, let's have a look at some of the other sceptics in the Bible. Let's, not only sceptics, but men who dare to turn round to God and say, but you can't tell me that that's right, is it, Lord? Oh, I believe in secret, God says, that's the man for me. Of course, we must not take it to the other extreme and forget that reverence is due to his holy name and acknowledge with all these things that we're only halfway along the truth, but all sincerity, how much that is valued, in spite of piety, which is merely superficial. So, let's take a few, lift out of the scriptures. I go straight away now because our time will not permit us to dwell too long on any point. Genesis 15. Now, Abraham, you remember has this distinction in the scriptures that he's called, both in the Old Testament and in the New, the friend of God. The friend of God. And as a friend of God, this is what he said in 15th chapter. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. He'd just come back from rescuing Lot, and he had willingly forfeited any share in the loot for the Lord's sake. Now the Lord appears to him and said, It's all right, Abraham, you won't lose anything. I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. Thou doesn't say, Oh, yes, Lord, thank you very much, Lord. But he says, in, in effect, yes, that's all very well, Lord, but what's the good of an exceeding great reward to me? I'm an old man, my wife's an old woman, and as far as I know, the only heir I should ever have is this Eliezer, who is my steward. You see? That was turning round to the Lord and saying, it's all very well to tell me I'm going to have an exceeding great reward, but what's the good of it? Now, instead of the Lord saying, oh, Abraham, you've said wicked things in my presence, Abraham said, Come out here, Abraham. Look at those stars. So shall thy seed be, and the man's heart melted. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and not a single word about the, what's the good of it all to me. Don't you see that man's an honest man? Or shall we turn the page to chapter 18, when Lot is involved in Sodom, and now the angel of the Lord has appeared and told Abraham that that city is doomed. Now look at this man. Verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, what's he after? What's Abraham after? Abraham's after one thing. He's trying to rescue Lot. That's all. But he doesn't say, uh, Will you uh, deliver Lot? He approaches it this way. And the Lord said, No, uh, uh, for adventure there be fifty, he said, within the city. Wilt thou destroy it? No, he said, I'll favour it, I'll deliver it. Then you know how it goes on, step by step. He says, oh, well, supposing there shouldn't be fifty, supposing there's forty-five or forty or thirty-five or thirty or whatever it is, you see. And he gets right down to ten and then he feels, well, I can't go any lower. But I think Abraham had thought, well, there's Lot and his wife and his sons and their two wives and one or two servants, ten, all right, he left off. But you know, I think God was pleased with that man pegging away at it. You know, daring to say in the presence of, of Almighty, oh, but supposing there weren't quite fifty, supposing, don't you see this is what Abraham, well, he was a friend of God. Although he was the Lord God omnipotent, he was a friend of God. And so he spoke to God, and God tolerated it, and God listened, and God hearkened. Shall we move now to another character in the scriptures, Moses? And of course we could find several occasions there, but one in particular, chapter 32 of, Ex of um, Exodus. Chapter 32. This people of Israel have been so stiff-necked, so rebellious that at last the Lord says, verse 10, now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. And then you see what Moses does, but he said, but Lord he said, you see what's going to happen if you do that? These outside nations who know that you led these people through the uh, Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness, they'll say uh, that, that uh, 
the mischief, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth, that he wasn't able to sustain them and keep them going. And your name, he said, will be, it will be smirched in the eyes and in the ears of these nations. And it says, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto this people. Isn't it extraordinary that a man could go into the presence of God and say, but if you do that, don't you see your name will be in some measure besmirched, Lord? And he says, oh, thank you, Moses, for that hint. Yes. Of course, it was for Moses' benefit that it was done, but isn't it a wonderful thought? That now is another man, you see. Abraham's a friend of God. What does it say about Moses? That God spoke to Moses face to face as a man talketh to his friend. Well, it doesn't mean to say that God did all the talking and Moses was mute. When a man speaks to his friend, his friend joins in and he has something to say. And God has put it in his book. He says, that's entering into my purposes. Oh, you're doing it blunderingly, I know. And one of these days you'll wish you said it differently. But I'm glad you've taken the stand, Moses, because of these facts. Shall we now come to the psalm that we read just now, Psalm 73. Here's another man. And he's written a psalm, and it's in the scriptures. And he's uh, he's telling you that he became envious of the wicked. He, he said, I, I don't know. He said, I seem to have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. I'm plagued all day long, but they seem to be getting away with it. Their eyes stand out in fatness. They have more than heart and wish. And I suppose that's repeated today. There's many a... Uh, uh, an occasion where there's extreme inequalities and apparently great injustice all around you. It doesn't mean to say that if you honestly seek to do a good day's work, your governor's going to say, ah, oh, you're the man for me and promote you. You know where you get promoted, don't you? Clean outside if, if necessary. And then you won't say, I suppose, in that mock party, oh, that was a lovely thing to do. You see? You'll say something like Job did for a moment, and rightly so, because it's, something's wrong. And so we have here, Psalm 73. Now I've said this before, but as it's been recorded, I'd like everyone to get this little hint. You notice in verse 1, we have the word truly, and in verse um, 13, we have the word verily, and in verse 17, we have the word, uh, verse 18, we have the word surely. Well, of course, in English, truly, verily, and surely are all much the same. Well, they're the same in the original. But their bearing is, I don't say this is a translation of the word, but this is the same thought in our modern idiom, that Asaph, when he wrote this psalm, when he started, he said, after all, after all, God is good to Israel. And you say, Asaph, after all, didn't you believe it once? He said, no, I didn't. My feet had well nigh slipped because I was envious that these who were getting on and I was being left behind. You see? And then he says, verse 13, when I began to look at that, I said, after all, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. After all. But what made the change in you, Asaph? He said, I went into the sanctuary of God. And then understood I their end and my end and the whole end. And what happened when you came out? I said, after all. Thou didn't set them in slippery places. Oh, I wouldn't be in their shoes now. Although I was envying them. And you notice he said, As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. 
And would you notice in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee, thou hast holden me by my right hand. That's why it was only almost and well nigh, not completely. He didn't know that at first, but he saw it afterwards. And when he came out, instead of envying the, the uh, ones who get away with it in this life, he said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth a desire like unto thee. Thou shalt uh, lead me by thy counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Here's the man, see, he's learned the lesson. But it's put there in that book. Plenty of words to put in our mouths if we wish them, when we also are moved by envy at the prosperity of the wicked, and seeing some person who is unscrupulous getting away with it, and we are trying to walk in harmony with the will of God again, getting pushed to the wall. It's happened again and again. Shall we turn the page to another one who is a little bit sceptical? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was the king in Israel, had more wisdom than any before him, Solomon. And we are told, in connection with Solomon, that he knew and had written about the hyssop that grows out of the wall to the cedar that grew on Lebanon. That is to say, this man was acquainted very, very closely with the works of God's hands and the wonder of creation. But when he wrote Ecclesiastes, he didn't start in the first chapter, all oh, the magnificence of creation, all oh, the wonder of that which keeps the sun, the moon and the stars in their places, all oh, the wonder of the animal world and the botanical world. No, this man's got another view. In spite of all that, he says, you know, I look out on this creation of which I form a part, and he says, I cannot make head and a tail of it. He said, it's all going round and round in a never-ending circle. The person today who says that somebody is running round in circles is only saying the same thing that Ecclesiastes said many, many centuries ago. He looks out onto the creation. He says, one generation passes, another cometh. The sun rises, the sun sets. All the rivers run into the sea, back they go. All things are going round and round and round in their circuits. And he says, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. See? Not a word about the wonder of creation. Now, Ecclesiastes was right. It would be wrong for him to say, oh, I've been examining this tiny daisy. And I've been marvelling the majesty of God and the mercy of God. And we could go on yarding like that forever. And there's a whole set of things gone wrong there's, he said, violence is being uh, in the province and nobody's bothering about it. People are suffering here with sickness and nobody's worrying. The poor are being afflicted. And now, he said, I can't merely dwell upon the wonder of the little daisy and see the work of God's hands and say, I'll have a blind eye to that. I must see that as well. But then you see, going back on this story for a moment, if you examine the arguments of the three friends, all they're going away all the time at their particular thing, but never once, never once throughout the whole of their argument do they ever bring in the work of redemption. And Job, who was carrying on alarming and saying things you ought never to have said, is the one that says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. You see? And then when we, when we get to Asaph, it was when he went into the sanctuary of God that has to do with redemption. He came out a different man. And Ecclesiastes 
He said, I gave myself to study and I became wise, but he said, what's the good of it to me? He says, how does a wise man die? He says, just like a fool. Well, then he says, what's the difference? He says, though a man lived 10,000 years twice told, one event's waiting for him. Oh, he says, this is vanity and vexation of spirit with a vengeance. He's facing it. Then he begins to say, but wait, it doesn't take place here. There is the day of rectification. The cookie cannot be made straight here. The rough places cannot be made plain here. But they will be. Always against the see that the only hope is in a future life which God has promised. So these men, you see, they weren't satisfied by mere quibbles, by mere platitudes, by mere nice, smooth, religious statements. They said some things that were very uncouth. They said some things out of the bitterness of their heart. But God knew why. I mean, even David, you remember, he said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. But he said it in his haste, and it's put in the book that he did. Showing you that God knows we do these things. Although it doesn't make it, make, excuse them, it faces the realities that sometimes prompt them. So we have Ecclesiastes. Then shall we turn to another character? And he is a character too. That's Jonah. Now, of course, we usually think of Jonah in connection with the marvellous experience he had uh, when he portrayed by his experience the resurrection of Christ three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But there's another point about Jonah, isn't there? If you read, there's one passage in the Kings where it says that Jonah was responsible for a certain fortification that was made right across the north part of Palestine to sort of protect Palestine from the northern invader. That's Nineveh. Now after he's done all that, God says to that very prophet, go to Nineveh and say, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you might have said to yourself, Oh, that suits him then. That's the enemy. But why did he run away? Why did he disobey? What he tells you in the last chapter. In the last chapter, we are told that Nineveh, or the end of chapter 3, we are told that the people of Nineveh repented of their evil. Although it may have only been a temporary one, it was a repentance. And it displeased Jonah. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? He's reminding God what he told him. He said, I told you so. Before I left my country, I told you so, Lord, that as sure as in Nineveh made the slightest sign of repenting, you go forgive them. Now he said, look at me, I'm a prophet. And I've gone and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown and now I've got to stand back and I've got to see them pardoned. And they're our potential foe and we're pardoning them. I fled and I said, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. You know, you could almost imagine God smiling, couldn't you? Quietly. He said, he's looking at Jonah fuming away down there because God was a merciful God and of great kindness 
Oh, Jonah, Jonah, what are you saying? And yet he knew the man's heart. He knew that man was all out for his own people. He was a shinfiner. He was Palestine for Israel and keep the enemy out. That was his trouble. He wasn't thinking of himself. And then you remember he sat brooding, watching this city to see what would happen. And he made him a booth and sat under its shadow because of the intensity of the heat of the sun. And then the good that he trained over it, which, which rapidly grew, withered. And Job, and Jonah was angry and wished himself to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Fancy saying that in the presence of a God of life and death. And God said to Jonah, dost thou well to be angry for the good? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. That's recorded. Don't you go copy it, but it's there. <laughs> then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the good, for the which thou hast not laboured, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare any for that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? If ever you meet one of those clever people who tell you that the Jehovah of the Old Testament is a bloodthirsty tribal God, just turn to the last verses of Jonah. Here is God saying, he's going to spare Nineveh because he is merciful. For he remembers that in Nineveh there were more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much cattle. That was a rebuke to Jonah. But don't you see, all these men are filling a place in this book. They're telling you that God will rather you stand up to it than just pretend that you're in perfect harmony with whatever he sends. You never question it. It never worries you. That's how we should be if we were absolutely perfect, but it may be just nonsense, or worse. It may be false, because we don't really in our hearts mean it. And God is teaching us in these devious ways. Well, now let's come to the New Testament, shall we? There's one man that stands out in the New Testament as an unbeliever. You know who I'm going to turn to. But, he had his place. John the 20th chapter, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's a very definite, positive statement. I mean, you and I, we believe the testimony of these men. Thomas didn't. We believe without having seen. Thomas wouldn't. Well, now, instead of being shut out, and forbidden, and chided and rebuked, no, after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, 
This is almost balancing the first chapter. Nathaniel is under a tree in seclusion praying. You can't see him. And then he comes out and he said, the Lord said, oh, I saw you when you were praying under the tree. You did? Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Here. Nobody had told the Lord, as far as we know, what Thomas had said. He hadn't seen them. He hadn't met them. But he said, Thomas, reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And then we're glad, aren't we? Thomas collapsed. And he said more than all the lot put together. He puts the crown on the witness that John was working to. He went down in the presence of that risen Christ and said, My Lord and my God. And that man was honoured, you see, whereas if we had been dealing with him, most of us, we wouldn't have let him take in that place. Shall I come back to a passage in the Old Testament which I sometimes have to remember myself because I know in my own heart and my own self I'm one of those that cannot suffer fools gladly. There comes a moment when I know that I've reached almost the limit. Now I ought not to, of course, because the Lord has suffered me a long time, but there it is. And then I remind myself of these words in the prophet Isaiah. A smoking flax will he not quench. Now, of course, if you have a little slipper lamp made of clay and some rag oil in it and a wick and it begins to go out and make a big volume of smoke with an awful smell and the best thing is to douse it quickly. That's what we do. But not the Lord. As most of us have been doused long ago, wouldn't we? The smoking flax, he will not quench. The bruised reed, will he not break? There's differences of opinion as to whether the reed is something you lean on or whether the reed was something that the shepherd boy cut, made a few holes in it, and played a little tune. Well, you can take your choice. He can lean upon a bruised reed, instead of breaking it. And he can get a tune out of a bruised reed, instead of throwing it away. So, I think we want to sometimes remember how the Lord has dealt with us, when we deal with some of these obstreperous people, that are very much of the same kin, after all. And then I come to the third chapter of Romans. And here you have a statement in the epistle to the Romans that it's well for us to ponder. The first three verses, verse four verses. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. That's God. God doesn't say, oh, I'll never be brought into judgment by anybody. Here's the testimony that he's going to so act, and so work the purpose of the ages, that he'll overcome He'd overcome when he's judged. Now, buried in the word glory is that thought. This is rather the wrong end of a study, but I'll give you a few words. You know the word glory 
is the word doxa, D-O-X-A. It comes in our word doxology. Well, the word doxa comes from the verb docio, and docio is translated a number of times to seem. It seemed good to us and the Holy Ghost. It seemed. The basis of the word glory, strangely as it sounds to us, is the word seem. Well, you say, how could that have any meaning? Well, let's take it a stage further. Dokimazo is the trial of your faith, which is much more precious than gold. Dokimazo means to test a metal and see if it is what it seems to be. Have you got it? That's glory. You have that, as I've said before, you have that little set of earrings that belong to Aunt Mary Ann, you know, and they've been in that box kicking about, and then suddenly you hear about the fabulous price that people are getting for old gold jewellery. So off you go. And you take them in, and you've already spent that money two or three times over, what you're going to get. And then the jeweller just shows you by the acid test. They're not worth bothering about. They are not what they seem. God says, put me to the test, try me now here with, and you'll discover that what I seem to be, I am. Now that's the word glory. There's more involved in glory, of course. There's all the magnificence that are associated with it, but essentially it means that God will triumphantly come out of it all. So sin comes short of the glory. We, we don't reach the standard, but God always will. And so he scattered through his book these queries and problems and questions and perplexities and doubts. And he's shown you different men approaching them and sometimes they take a long while to be convinced. But it's all a part of his lesson for us and it's a lesson that we do well to ponder. And as we go through the book of Job, of course we shan't take chapter by chapter, we can't do that. But as we go through, we shall discover that this man has had to say these things. And then at long last, he's got to put his hand on his mouth. He said, I've heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, I repent. The last passage I want to turn to is to consider the attitude of somebody else. In the Gospel according to Matthew, there was one who had come to the end of a period of his ministry. He had come and presented himself as heaven's king. He had been attested from heaven as the son of God. He had worked miracles that no man had ever seen and the consequence was instead of being accepted, he was rejected. Matthew 11. says in verse um, 20, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he speaks again about Capernaum and Sodom. Then verse 25, and this is the point, At that time, at that time when he had to say those things, when they had so rejected him like that, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee. Now, here's the real thing. This is not mock modesty. This is not mock piety. This is real. 
This is where we've all got to get sometime. But we may have to go along that other thorny road that Job went before we learn the lesson. But here it is. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And because he is of that capacity, because he is of that character, he now says to his disciples, and I suppose he says it to you and me still, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. Don't only read the book of Job. Don't only read the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't only let Jonah have a talk with you. But come unto me. I'll show you another aspect. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. To take the yoke means to walk together. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I thought that it would be worthwhile this evening just spending the time we have looking at this rather strange aspect. Now, I do hope that you won't go away and think that I've been justifying using hard words of the Lord. You won't do that. You'll say, no, that's my folly. That's my frailty. But isn't it good to know that God has allowed it to be written and ultimately to lead those very men who said those things by another pathway Instead of rebuking them and casting them off, he honoured the fact that they were honest, that they didn't call things white when they knew full well they were black, or they thought they were black. He honoured he honored their honesty, and I think he looks to us too, that we too shall realise that it's something more than lip service that it's needed, that it's heart service. Well now after that, where we meet together next time, I think it'll be time to begin to look at the book of Job itself. You've been very long-suffering, but I had a feeling that the book of Job is no easy book to understand. And the more we get an atmosphere, as it were, first, the better we shall be able to enter into some of its problems. So shall we accept that again as another attempt to let the book speak? And I pray that what we have heard may have been of service and something that will help us in the days to come.